Welcome to our 15th and penultimate episode of Nuggets for Vet Nurses, where we bring bite-sized bits of clinically relevant knowledge to your everyday nurse. I'm Marcus Taylor. And I'm Esther Fan. Both Kiwis, and now from both sides of the equator, we are your show hosts. And I've got a confession to make. Esther told me to say penultimate, but I actually have no idea what it means. <laughs> it means second to last, like not quite the ultimate episode. Oh, so it's like a fancy way of saying second to last. Exactly. Oh, wow. I will. I have to admit, I did feel pretty fancy when I said it. Yeah. Yep. It's not just a feeling you are fancy now. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, we're we're approaching the end of this podcast series, as you can probably tell, but we thought we'd be tackling a big topic before we go. It's actually a two-part series on pain and painkillers. Today, we're going to address clients' concerns about pain and quality of life. Next and final episode, we'll cover the different classes of pain medications. That's right. There are two types of conversations I often find myself having with clients over pain. The first comes after they say, but he's not in pain. Yeah, I know those situations like Kev, my Kelpie, jumped over a fence three weeks ago. He yelped at the time and was limping for a few days. And since then, he's just been running around on three legs. Happy as. You know, he's not in pain. He just won't put any weight on it. Yep, classic. Owners sometimes think that if their pet's in pain, they should be screaming or yelping or lethargic or at least have that sad look. Now, for sure, those things can be signs of pain, but we shouldn't hand out painkillers to those patients only. We need to explain gently but firmly that limping or non-weight bearing is a sign of pain. And letting him run around like that for a couple of weeks before making a vet appointment isn't really acceptable. Another common situation is arthritic pain. This is harder to detect because changes are gradual and often mistaken for quote-unquote getting old, especially because it's not common for them to just suddenly start limping. Yeah, the he's not in pain, he's just slowing down, like me as I get older, Granny Gloria laughs. Well, Granny Gloria... I hate to break it to you, but slowing down is often the first sign of arthritis. And as you will probably know, arthritis is painful. Is your dog stiff when getting up in the mornings or after work? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, after walks. I mean, maybe he goes to work with you at the office. I don't know. Has he stopped jumping into the car? If the answer is yes to any of these, he's probably in arthritic pain and we should do something about it. Sometimes the best way to diagnose pain or convince Granny Gloria is to give her dog a course of painkillers or arthritis injections. And if he magically improves, well, we can retrospectively confirm that he was in pain. For more on arthritis injections, go back and listen to episode 11. And for more on other painkillers, you'll have to wait till our next episode. And one final common he's not in pain situation is with dental pain. Yep. You've just lifted the lip and have been overwhelmed by the horrible halitosis that hits you. You wobble the teeth to show the owner that they're basically rotting out and tell her the dental will cost a couple of thousand dollars and they claim ignorance. Oh really? Are they that bad? But he's still acting normal and eating his biscuits fine. He's not in pain. You know, I actually had one owner say that things were falling out of her dog's mouth. (laughs) She put her dog on the table and then she pulled some little white things out of her pocket And I'm like, they're your dog's teeth. (laughs) And she was horrified because he seemed pretty normal otherwise. That's when we need to explain that dogs still feel pain, but don't always show pain. 
Dogs and cats too will tolerate a lot of pain before letting on that they're sore. That's because in the wild, if they went around crying, they would attract a predator, which would inflict more pain. And I guess if that predator was successful, I suppose all pain in the end would end. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose, but they're probably not that forward thinking. And the point is, animals can suffer silently. Not only do they attract predators, but they might even be turned on by their own pack and rejected, Mm. you know, so got to choose your friends wisely. I think that's like a bit of a metaphor for life. What do you think, Esther? Yeah. Are you my friend? (laughs) (laughs) How about we wait till you break your leg and then we'll see if I turn on you or not. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. But, But dental disease is a prime example of silent suffering. So pain is really hard to diagnose in animals, and it's not always up to the owner to determine if their pet is in pain. So it's best to consult the vet. You probably know most of this, nurses, but we want you to be able to explain it clearly and concisely and convincingly to the clients. The other conversation I often have is around pain and suffering. The classic scenario goes like this. I've just diagnosed an old, skinny, vomiting and diarrhea cat with stage 3 kidney disease. The owner will become all sad and ask, is he in pain? Well, Esther, is he? Well, I gently explain that CKD isn't typically an excruciatingly painful disease, so I can't be 100% sure, but I don't suspect that he's in a lot of pain. I definitely don't want to keep him going if he's in pain. But that's not the end of the story. I explain that whilst he may not be in pain, he's still suffering. You can suffer without necessarily being in pain. For example, the kidneys aren't filtering the toxins in the blood, so there are more in circulation, which makes him nauseous, so he vomits and is losing weight. He's peeing so much that he's dehydrated. Being dehydrated isn't painful, but it still makes you feel miserable and affects quality of life. So suffering and pain isn't always the same thing. Diseases like heart disease, kidney disease, some cancers like lymphoma – don't make the pet feel ouchy, but they do make them miserable. So it's not only the degree of pain that we take into account when assessing the quality of life. What are some concrete ways to tell quality of life, Esther? When do we know it's time to let go? Yeah, this is such a difficult, sensitive topic, but I feel our role is to give owners specific and objective measures to make a decision on euthanasia rather than say something like, you'll know when it's time or he'll tell you when he's done. Yeah, those might be a bit ambiguous and not helpful. So I have two things I tell owners to look out for. Just two, just to keep it simple. So the first is appetite. When appetite goes, then the quality of life has really deteriorated and euthanasia should be considered in the very near or immediate future. Of course, an animal is allowed some off days, just like all of us. And some animals are picky eaters and may eat less and less as they progress, But otherwise, a sharp drop-off in appetite is a clear sign. Okay, that sounds simple enough. And how about the second? The second concrete measure is the desire and ability to do normal routines. So, for example, if Lulu the lab usually runs to the door wanting to greet the kids when they come home from school, but now she doesn't want to do that, or she can't get out of bed to do that, then quality of life has deteriorated significantly. Or if Fluffy the feline usually uses his litter box and then goes and watches the world go by on the windowsill, but now he can't really get in and out of the litter box and doesn't attempt to jump onto the windowsill, then quality of life has deteriorated to a point where we should take action. 
That sounds reasonably easy to assess too, even amidst the anguish and all the emotion. Yeah, and as you can see, it's much more concrete than, oh, just watch them in general. It's up to you, but don't leave it for too long. Okay, well, I think we've gone on long enough about these dismal topics. Let's let's move on to something a little bit more uh, bright and wonderful, like a couple of episodes. We talked a bit about creativity and some makeshift veterinary apparatuses that we conjured up back in New Zealand. You hinted that you had some other stories from a bit further afield. Do you want to share those with us before we go to our final episode? And forever hold my peace. That's right. <laughs> so what were you doing? Okay, so I was in Bolivia for a couple of months helping teach or tutor vet students at their local university uh, through Christian Veterinary Mission. It was in northeast of the country and was a small and not very affluent city. The vet department in the university basically consisted of some lecture rooms and two wet labs kitted out with microscopes and drip stands and not a lot else. It sort of functioned as a public clinic for sick animals as well. But because there was no pharmacy and hardly any consumables, the students would usually take a blood sample. And while they were looking under the microscope to diagnose Babesia, which is a common blood parasite, which most animals had, would send the owners off to a human pharmacy with a list of things to buy. And they would come back with like bags of fluid and any other medications we would need. And then we would just administer them. Wow. That's wild. <laughs> yes. There was heaps of downtime, like waiting for clients to come in, I suppose. And the students would just be on their phones. And they were all like, Dr. Rita, that's what they call me. Dr. Rita, we're really busy on our phones. And I'd be like, no, you're not. You're just waiting for all the internet pages to load, just like I am. So come on, let me teach you something. And I'd be continually having to come up with tutorial topics to keep them entertained, which was great fun for me. Kept me busy as well. I love mangoes. They're one of my favorite fruits, I suppose. Definitely when I was growing up, you know, mangoes were a treat in New Zealand because we're not a tropical country. Mm. So there was this mango tree right outside the wet labs and I was watching it every day that I was there waiting for those mangoes to ripen so I could eat them essentially. But unfortunately, it wasn't mango season and I calculated that they would probably ripen after I left, which was, was just devastating. But... One day I came up with the idea that we would still pick those mangoes and use them not to eat, but to practice our FNAs or fine needle aspirates because no one had taught them how to do that. I don't know what was in their curriculum. FNAs were not, but they had a microscope and I think they had stains somewhere. Yeah, they did have stains uh, for their blood smear. So, so we could do FNAs and because we didn't have a lot of hospital patients, we didn't really have a lot of lumps and bumps to sample. So I did an FNA practical on mangoes where we took samples and looked at the mango flesh under the microscope, which was uh, really interesting. The students loved that. It's brilliant. And then they also wanted more practicals on suturing, so doing surgery, because again, they didn't have a lot of animals to practice or watch surgery on. So what we decided was that we could go to the local abattoir and get body parts to practice our suturing on. So I remember a student took me to the, the local abattoir on the motorbike because there was hardly any cars. Everyone got around the motorbike, which was awesome. And we basically just drove all the way to the door, which in New Zealand you can't do that because it's all, you know, hygiene and biosecurity and stuff. And we just sort of stuck our heads and then we're like, hey. And then the guy who was like hacking away body parts was like, you know, what do you want? And ushered us in. So we just went in, you know, dust and all, very biosecure, <laughs> and explained that we were vet students and we wanted to have just parts. So we said, oh, what part do you want? Essentially, we're like, I don't know. What are you chucking out? So we, we came back with um, all these tails. So we gathered up all these tails and we drove home really pleased with ourselves. And then we had to store them somewhere. 
Now, the guy that I was with, he said that he had no space in his fridge. I didn't think my host mum would like it if I came back with a bunch of cow's tails and put them in the fridge for when she came home from work. <laughs> didn't want to push my luck there. Yeah. So I was like, oh, we'll just go to another vet student. Go around to Shavi's place and, and see if we can put it in his fridge. So we drove around, stood at the gate, rang the bell, and his little sister came out. And we are like, hey, you know, Shavi's there. And he's there. she's like, no, he's not. And we're like, can you ask your mum if we can put these in the fridge? <laughs> she came back and said, like, no, I don't know what she had told her mum. So we're like, oh, no worries, we'll go somewhere else. So we're literally driving around the township, trying to find a place to um, store the tails. And eventually, one of the students either was home and the parents weren't home or something like that, and they accepted the tails. So we just passed the tails through these barred gates. They went away and we're just like, so bring them to class tomorrow. <laughs> it's brilliant. And sure enough, those tails, they came back. We did lots of practicals on them and the students went home happy. So there's like a bunch of students that are just absolute professionals at doing tail amputations somewhere in the world. Tail specialists. Exactly. We did actually also progress to getting uteruses, uteri, from the abattoir as well to do a cesarean practical, which was pretty fun. So all the students had to actually go and source their own uterus. So I think they must have like 20 students rock up at the same abattoir just asking for like uteruses of cows. <laughs> and then the next day, everyone had this big sack on the front of their motorbike, which was the uterus in the sack. Wow. Yeah, I, I can post a photo of that one, actually. Sounds like you facilitated a lot of driving round of organs in Bolivia. <laughs> that is right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, you should have been the one getting taken out by soldiers for... <laughs> You know, organ trafficking or something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it wouldn't have been wrong. We were actually we were shipping or- organs. That's right. Trying to hide them in like, you know, little girls' fridges. My goodness. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, follow us on Instagram. We're going to post some pictures of Esther carrying cow's uteruses <laughs> on a motorbike. So make sure you check that out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And we'll be back for our final episode on painkillers in a couple of weeks' time. See you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye.